1 Timothy chapter 6 tonight in your Bibles, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Finishing up this study and in this uh, epistle to the pastor at the Ephesian church, Pastor Timothy. I'm not sure if you've heard this saying before, but uh, the saying goes like this, no one spends other people's money as well as they spend their own. No one spends other people's money as well as they spend their own. I learned that when I was working at Jackson Dawson. Um, the reality is that when people, when, when something's going to have to come out of our own pack, pocket, we're much, much more careful than when we're spending, you know, we got somebody else's credit card, for example. Um, we, we just, in general, we take care of our own possessions better than we take care of other people's. So, if I borrowed my a tool from my neighbor and I ruined it, well, you know, it's not going to be any skin off my back because I don't really have to use it again. If he doesn't notice, I can just give it back to him. It's no big deal. Obviously, that's not a, a ethical way to live, but, but frankly, that's the way that a lot of people think. Or, you know, if I have a company credit card, I'm going to be less careful with my boss's money than I am with spending my own money. We saw that on a number of occasions when, when I was working there at Jackson Dawson, that people just... They're really quick to, to buy huge dinners when, when the boss is paying for it and uh, not so quick when it's their own money. When it comes to the gospel, we need to engage our mind and our affections so that we give proper care to the protection of the gospel because the truth is, is that the gospel is not our message. Obviously, there's some, you know, there, there's some reality where we take hold of this gospel but it's not, it doesn't belong to us. We're not the owner of it. We're simply managers of it. It's God's message. And our job is to protect it, to guard it. And we might think, well, wait a second, the gospel doesn't re- really need protecting. I mean, isn't the gospel kind of self-preserving? And in one sense, it's true. The gospel will survive in spite of us, no matter what we do. But... God also expects that the message of the gospel is going to be preserved through people, through His church. And the reason I know that is because of chapter 3, verse 15. It says that the church is the pillar and support of the truth. So it is not the pastor who guards and protects the gospel only, but actually the whole congregation has responsible to has a responsibility to protect, to hold up the gospel. And you can kind of see this if you just take it to its logical conclusion, right? If a church starts to to, to become um, slack in its thinking on the gospel, then the next thing you know, the gospel is going to be abandoned. And let's say that every church did that. Well, eventually the gospel is going to be just kind of fall to the wayside. And we've had periods in history where that very thing happened. And in order for the gospel to, to be um, kind of set back up as a bulwark, people had to go back to the Scriptures and find out what the gospel was. And that's what you see happening in the Reformation because prior to that in the Dark Ages, people didn't really care. The churches had dropped the ball. So we have this responsibility to guard what has been entrusted to us and we need to recognize our work in this responsibility. And specifically, Paul's going to tell Timothy that, that he, must, he must guard the gospel, that he has a responsibility to lead the church in guarding this gospel. So look at the last two verses in 1 Timothy, the last two verses in 1 Timothy.
and uh, let me read them for you. This is the Word of God. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. So Paul writes to Timothy to say, Timothy, you have this responsibility to guard the gospel. The pastor has the responsibility to guard the gospel. Now again, I just mentioned chapter 3, verse 15 says the whole church needs to uh, is the pillar and support of the truth. So don't don't think the congregation has no responsibility, but just recognize that kind of the pastor is the one that's going to lead the charge in this, and it makes sense with regard to the qualifications and what he is entrusted to do. So what we see here is first the responsibility to guard the gospel in verse 20 and the first part of 21, and then we'll see a prayer for grace. Paul's going to pray that grace be upon him as he does this work. So Paul is concluding his letter to Timothy with a command and a prayer for grace. The command seen there at the first part of verse 20, he says, O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. So this command, everything else that you see all the way down to the last part of verse 21, supports what this main command. Guard what is entrusted to you. Literally, guard the deposit. That's how it's translated. Guard the deposit that's been entrusted to you. So, in chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, Paul told Timothy that he needed to watch out for strange doctrines and to recognize that the goal of his teaching was sound doctrine. And and that sound doctrine must come from a love with a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And then later on in chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, Paul said that he entrusted a command to Timothy and that Timothy must fight for this gospel because there are some who will turn people away. And so the the point from the beginning of Paul's letter all the way to the end is, Timothy, you need to guard this deposit. You need to guard what has been entrusted to you. You must act like a security guard who has the responsibility to protect a a priceless treasure so that when you're done with your shift or when your boss is ready to to collect on that treasure that you are guarding, you're able to give that treasure back to him in the proper state, not something that's been damaged or has been stolen under your care. So, Timothy, you need to guard what has been entrusted to you. The temptation for Timothy is that he might want to cut corners with the gospel Right? He might want to compromise the gospel in order to accommodate certain group, people groups. He might even water down the gospel so that you know the edges aren't so sharp. We don't really want to talk about judgment and sin and all that, so we'll just kind of ignore that. And part of Timothy's responsibility is to guard what's been entrusted. So this is what God's given to me. This is what I disperse to the people. This is how I explain it to them. This deposit is not something that a pastor is to enlarge upon or invent. He simply embraces it and protects it from being distorted. So if we think of it like a computer program, you know, let's say that you wrote a computer program. You designed the whole thing and you had a, a, a goal in mind for how that computer program would be used, the end user, how they would use it. 
Well, you would be upset if someone came along after the fact and, and modified that computer program. So now that no longer does what you wanted it to do. And, and similarly, we are not the designer of the gospel. We are not the owner of the gospel. Timothy's not the designer or the owner. He's simply a guardian of it. And so his clear command is to guard it. It's not to create or manipulate or add to it, but to understand it and preserve what is there. You might think, well, that sounds pretty easy. I mean, how much harder can it get? You just have to understand it and preserve it. And But but it is, um, it's not much more complicated than that, frankly. It, it is... It is pretty straightforward. Obviously, it's a lot of work. You have to understand some of these doctrines of demons are um, are, are very close to the truth, and they actually use parts of the truth, right? Uh, because like Satan, their their father, they disguise themselves as angels of light, and so it's not a surprise that 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 Satan come along, take a pocket of truth from the gospel, and then manipulate it and add to it and next thing you know you have a different gospel and so in theory it's very easy but in practice it's it's actually um, it's a lot of work on the part of Pastor Timothy and any pastor who falls in his shoes so how does the pastor do this if the main command in the text is guard the deposit guard the gospel that's been entrusted to you how does he do that well that's answered for us in verses the second part of verse 20 into the, sec- the first part of verse 21. And very simply, we could say it this way. The way that the pastor guards the gospel, or we could say one of the ways that he guards the gospel, is by avoiding false teaching. And the reason I say that is because of the next line in verse 20. Avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments that is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray. So you need to avoid, Timothy, if you're going to guard the 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 deposit that has been entrusted to you, then you need to avoid false teaching. Specifically, he calls it worldly chatter and empty chatter. That is, it's not from God. It's godless chatter. It's nonsense. Notice how they describe it at the end of the verse. It's falsely called knowledge. So, Paul's saying, you know, when these false teachers come in, they're not saying, hello, we're bringing in a false gospel. They're saying, we know what is really true. Right? What Timothy's been speaking is not true. What we are telling you is true knowledge. And Paul's saying it's falsely falsely they are calling it knowledge, but I'm telling you that it is false and that you need to watch out for them. And isn't that the nature of false teachers? That they're not going to come in with a big banner and say, Hello, I'm teaching the doctrine of demons right now. Perk up your ears because you don't want to believe this. I'm about to teach you what is false. They're not going to do that. Instead, they grab a couple of texts that they use as proof texts and they tell you what they think is truth and that their teaching is truth, that this is knowledge. They're like the the guy who's selling the the fake Rolex watch. Right? The watches look exactly like the real thing. I mean, if if you didn't know, you would think that it is the real thing. It's actually got the name Rolex right on it but they don't last. And they're not the real thing. They don't have the quality of, of, the actual, of the actual watch. And these false teachers in Ephesus supposedly had, the, had a corner in their minds. They had a corner on the truth market and they claimed to know what real godliness looked like. 
And for them, it was, remember, abstaining from marriage as if that was ungodly and abstaining from certain foods as if that was ungodly. And Paul says, no. Chapter 4, right? Don't give up what God has rightly called good. God has called marriage to be good and God has called these foods clean. So don't, don't give all those things up and act like that's some form of spirituality. It's not. And that's the nature of false teaching. They come in, they, they look very spiritual, right? Self-denial. They're actually denying themselves of some kinds of pleasure, right? Who doesn't want to eat ham and bacon, right? Who doesn't want to get married? And these guys are coming in saying, listen, we're self-deniers. We must be godly. Timothy saying, or Paul saying to Timothy, you better watch out for those guys. You better understand the Scriptures clearly because the Gospel is not about uh, eating and drinking primarily. It's not about marriage or, abs- or marriage or celibacy. It's about following Jesus. And God has designed all things to be richly to enjoy it. Obviously, within the context of His boundaries. That doesn't mean we can just go around and sin. That's clearly not what Paul is saying there in chapter 4. But, but that's the nature of false teaching is it's not easy to spot. And that's why the pastor has to be careful to guard what has been entrusted to him. Now, what, what is it exactly that Timothy should do with this false teaching? We know that he needs to guard what's been entrusted by avoiding false teaching. But notice that, that Paul does not say something like, you need to study these false teachings and you need to then counter their every point. He doesn't say that. Instead, he just get, tells them to do one thing. Avoid them. And I would say it like this. Avoid embracing it and then that will keep you from teaching it. Right. So if you avoid embracing it, then you're going to avoid teaching it or spreading it. And that's all the, that Timothy has to do. Now, there may be a place to study some false teachings and try to understand some of their points so that you can counter them. But Paul seems to be saying something like this, don't even engage these men. You know, sometimes when we enter into a conversation with people who are teaching false doctrine, we give them the time of day, so to speak. We give, in some sense, some credibility to their foolishness. You know, Proverbs 23, 4 and 5 say, don't answer a fool according to his folly or else you'll become like him. And so there is a sense when false teachers come and they're speaking in their folly, their foolishness, that we unwisely follow in and get into their, you know, into the, the, the depths of their, their foolish conversation. We would do well to just kind of, you know what? I know what's true and, um, and I, I, I'm just going to avoid that kind of thing. I know if you're not willing to listen, you're not willing to learn, you're not willing to look at the scriptures that, that actually speak against what you're saying, then, then do we really need to talk about this? You know, some people are... I mean, in other cases, um, you, you do need to address the person because, frankly, the next verse in Proverbs 23, verse 5 says, Answer a fool according to his folly, or else he will become conceited. So, there's kind of a balance there that you've got to recognize when to do it when not to. Sometimes you don't answer or you'll become like him. Sometimes you do answer because otherwise you'll become conceited. And so... I think that's that. There's a principle there that would apply to how we handle false teachers as well. The result, if we fail to avoid false teaching, is that we will follow after them, turning away from the faith. Notice the end of, or notice verse 21, which some have professed and thus gone away, gone astray from the faith. So, in other words, if 
Timothy, the pastor, ignores Paul's warning, he will follow after the false teachers into apostasy, turning away from the faith. So there's a great danger in Timothy just ignoring what Paul's saying here. Don't condone or allow this false teaching because eventually you will embrace it and you will turn away from the faith. That's the ultimate end of this false knowledge, this thing that's falsely called knowledge, that those who embrace this false teaching will go astray from the faith. So Timothy, for his own sake, must guard the gospel so that he doesn't fall away. And for the sake of the congregation there in Ephesus, he must guard the gospel. They, they need to um, hold fast to what is true, to cling to that which is good. And one of the ways that they do that is by Timothy, their pastor, helping them to see what is true and, and what ought to be held to. So first, a command, uh, a responsibility there to guard the gospel. And then Paul concludes with the prayer for grace at the end of verse 21. I love how Paul begins and ends all of his letters. You can go into all of his letters and you can find that he starts in the first couple of verses of every letter with prayer for grace or, or grace be with you type thing. And then he ends his prayer with grace as well. And the fact that Paul, we could say, bookends his letters, all of his letters with grace, tells us what he's depending on throughout the whole, the whole letter and throughout all of life that from beginning to end, it's all about God's grace. It's about us leaning on God for help, right? We can't do it on our own. Paul can't do it on his own. Timothy can't do it on his own. We need God's grace. And so he prays for it. He prays that Timothy and the church at Ephesus would get what you and I need every day. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. We need what... Uh, Augustus Toplady wrote in, in the, uh, I think that's who wrote Amazing Grace. Or no, was that John Newton? John Newton wrote in Amazing Grace. Right? The grace that has led us safely far is the same grace that will lead us home. We need grace. We've needed grace to get to where we are now. But, you know, we depend on God's grace all the way till the end. And so Paul finishes his letter by saying, Grace be with you. And so it is right, Christian to pray for grace often. I mean, grace is unmerited. We might say, well, wait a second. When I'm praying for it, I'm actually asking for something and, and it's something that's unmerited. It's unearned. So when I pray, it kind of sounds like I'm earning it. But Paul actually prays for it here. He says, uh, grace be with you. And he's not just saying, you know, I kind of wish or I wish you good luck or something like that or I hope kind of grace falls on you. This is actually a prayer for grace that they would receive God's unmerited favor. And so you're, you would be right to, to pray for God's grace on you and certainly uh, on this church and other people as well. Those who adhere to false doctrine, according to verse 21, depart from the faith. And so there is a necessary connection between false doctrine and turning away from God. And that's why it's so important for Timothy to guard what is entrusted to him. Turn back to chapter 4, verse 16, and notice the weight of his responsibility. Paul says to Timothy here, chapter 4, verse 16, he says, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. So it kind of sounds like what Paul's telling him to do with regard to the gospel in, in chapter 6, verse 20. Pay close attention to yourself, your own spiritual condition, and 
to your teaching. Why? Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. So, Timothy, watch out for your own soul and watch out for your teaching. Make sure that those are grounded in the Gospel. I think that's what he's saying. And as you persevere in that, Timothy, you will save yourself. Now, don't take that to mean anything other than what we know the rest of the Scriptures to teach. It just means that the way that... One of the means that God bring, by which God brings about salvation is through our perseverance, right? There's no one who, um, without, let's say, Hebrews, I think it's chapter 10, says, without sanctification, no one will see the Lord. So, you, we have to persevere all the way to the end if there's going to be genuine salvation. And we still believe, even though we believe in perseverance, we, we still believe that God is the one who's behind it all. He's the initiator. He's the one who holds us up all the way. But at the same time, we can't just, again, float down the lazy river of life and of spiritual life and expect God to just carry us into the clouds and flowery beds of ease and we never have to do any work. We have to persevere. And so that's what Paul's saying here. Work hard. Or, you know, in Philippians 2, I think it's 13, 14, says, um, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For... Um, for God works in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. So there in verse 14, it says God's doing the work. Verse 13 says you, Christian, have to do the work. You work out your salvation. So that's what Paul's saying here. Timothy, work it out. Persevere in these things. And when you do, you, you will save yourself. You'll see salvation completed in you, the work that God's doing. And notice the end of verse 16. And you will ensure salvation for those who hear you. So again, we go back to the critical importance of having a pastor who is committed to the gospel because how he understands the gospel will not only affect his own soul, but who else? The congregation. By watching out, when the pastor watches out for his own soul and for his own teaching, he ensures salvation for himself and for those who hear. This is critical. So let me give you two very specific applications that, 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 that these applications are connected to what's going on in our church right now. All right? Number one. Uh-oh. What did I do? User error. Okay. Number one. Choose a pastor who will guard the gospel. Choose a pastor who will guard the gospel. I can't say this strongly enough. I mean, obviously, at the very base level, the pastor needs to be someone who is who meets the qualifications that are given for a pastor in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Okay, that's at the very base level. But after that, you need someone who is willing or who, who is good at guarding the gospel. Now, we might think of, the again, guarding the gospel, this doesn't seem like a good concept. Why would we ever have to guard something that can guard itself? But maybe a, an illustration from the Old Testament might help. Um, remember when, when, um, when Israel was being attacked by the Philistines and, um, and Samuel's sons saw that they were losing to the Philistines? What did they do? They, they went back and had the, the Ark of the Covenant come over, this is 1 Samuel chapter 4, 5, somewhere around there. 
they brought the covenant, the Ark of the Covenant back to the battle so that it would be kind of like a lucky charm. So that, you know, if the Ark of the Covenant's here, surely we can't lose. Well, what happened? <laughs> they lost. And what happened to the Ark of the Covenant? It got stolen by the Philistines, taken back to, remember, you know, set up there next to Dagon. And, um, and as a result, the Philistines thought they had won. Well, in the end, God preserved the ark, didn't He? I mean, the ark didn't get destroyed. It didn't get damaged. In fact, it killed uh, hundreds of people, I think, from uh, the people who treated it profanely and looked into the ark. And um, so the ark, in a sense, protects itself, right? But at the same time, there was an expectation by the Levites to guard the ark. That was part of their responsibility. They were supposed to keep it covered. No one was supposed to see it, except for the high priest, right? Even the, when they would go into the, when they would set up the the uh, tabernacle each time, they would bring it into the holy of holies. It would be completely covered, and um, the only person that would ever see it was the high priest, and that was only uh, once a year, and he had to come with the sacrifice. But then the the ark became some kind of a a lucky charm, and the next thing you know. The, the ark is captured. So let me try to take that analogy, and, and I recognize that that's not that's not the point of the text, but I'm just using that as a picture for what the gospel is like. Can God guard the gospel on His own? I mean, is God going to build His church? Absolutely, right? Is the gospel eventually going to accomplish exactly what God intended? Yes. But do we have a responsibility? We have a responsibility, like the Levites in a sense, to guard it, to protect it from being distorted, from false teachers taking over. And, and that's what God's in, entrusted to us as a church. The church is the pillar and support of the, tr- the truth, First Timothy 3.15. And specifically, the pastor in his work has the charge to lead in protecting this gospel, not allowing it to be captured or altered in any way. This is a great responsibility. So when you go to choose a pastor, can I say to you, make sure that you choose one who will guard the gospel. Secondly, choose a pastor who is committed to the heart of the gospel. This goes a little bit deeper than someone who's just willing to guard it. You know, there's lots of guards who will just do things for sake of doing it. It's part of my job, you know. But, But maybe a better way to think about it is someone who actually loves doing it. Someone who loves the gospel and loves to see it in all of its glory, to see its truth and its purity, that's the kind of guy that you really need to lead this church. We need leaders who are willing to study the Scriptures, to know the Scriptures, to be confident in the body of truth that has been entrusted to them. We need leaders who know how to and who will avoid the nonsense of false teaching. And that requires that they actually know what false teaching looks like. They have to know that there are many ugly heads of false teaching. They need to recognize that even though that people will come and call it what they're teaching knowledge, right? In many cases, those are opposed to knowledge. It's godless, empty nonsense like we've seen tonight. We need a leader who is willing to stand up to false teachers and not allow them to take over so that they can just teach whatever they want and, and, and lead other people astray. We need someone who's willing to hold people accountable for the truth that they proclaim. The task of guarding the gospel is not easy. It's hard. I mean, in in principle, it's easy to consider. 
And I think part of that has to do with who we are as a culture. I think, you know, we are, as Americans, we are kind of self-made people. You know, we are made up of entrepreneurs and innovators. We're constantly trying to improve things. I mean, just think about Ford, Ford Motor Company for a second. What happens when the Ford F-150 gets the number one in truck sales? Do they say, okay, you know what, we've arrived. And so now for the next 100 years, we're going to keep this same model with all of its same features. This is what we're going to do. Is that what they do? No, they keep on improving, right? They keep on staying ahead of the market. They want to make sure that they know all the latest technology, what people are wanting in the car so that they can, they can provide that for, for them. The same thing is true for Apple products and, and Oreo cookies. Uh, there's a constant pressure to improve and to add more options because we want to keep our buyers coming, keep, keep them buying our product. Otherwise, what happens? The customer turns to another product. And so as entrepreneurs and innovators, what do we tend to do with the gospel wrongly? Right? We, we tend to want to manipulate it and change it. Well, you know what? It's not working right now. We must have messed something up, so we need to, we need to modify it. We need to change it. We need to add more to it. We need to manipulate it. Make it more palatable. Make it more relevant. Take away some of the, the, the rough edges that, that kind of get people frustrated and they walk out the door. Instead of thinking of the gospel like a product or a brand that we need to keep improving, I think it would be better for us to think of the gospel more like a classic painting, a classic work of art. I mean, what would you think of, uh, of someone who was entrusted with taking care of the Mona Lisa? We're headed over to France, uh, one of our stops on the way to, our only stop actually on the way to Ivory Coast. And I think Mona Lisa's, is that in French? France? In Paris, okay? So I don't know if we'll see it or not, but... Um, so what happens if, let's say, the new guy just gets hired as a museum curator? Is that what they call those? Someone who's in charge of the whole museum there. What, which museum is that? The Louvre. So the Louvre. And he decides, you know what? The Mona Lisa is not bringing in enough people right now. So I've got some painting skills. And I think it would be better to kind of bring out some more light in this part. And maybe, you know, she's got this sad-looking face. So let me just give her a smile and change her eyebrows a little bit. I mean, what would we think about someone who did that? Or someone who, who came to the Henry Ford Museum and took the car that JFK was shot in and said, you know what, I think this is, more people would come if it were orange. Let's just paint it. Or maybe we add hydraulic lifts or a racing stripe or something. We say, that's ridiculous. That's not your job. I mean, your job is to preserve what is there so that people can see it for what it is in all of its glory. And that's the goal of the pastor and the Christian. That we are more like the museum curator, the, the one entrusted to, to take this priceless piece of art and protect it and not change it in any way that it can be seen in all of its glory. And so, as you go through the process of searching for a pastor, don't think, okay, we need to soup up this gospel. We need to make it bigger and better so we can attract more people. No, we need someone who's willing to, to love this gospel, who is so committed to it that he will not turn away from it. 
that he will stand up and fight for the, against those who, who, who come with this thing that's falsely called knowledge. And so, in order to do that, you need to take stock of his qualifications. Okay, He needs to make sure that he meets the qualifications, but you also need to take stock of his responsibilities. If he's the one who actually needs to watch out for himself and his teaching because it will save him and those who hear him, then you need to make sure that, that part of his qualification is that he loves the gospel and he's willing to stand up for it. So make sure that he's equipped to fulfill those responsibilities. And I am praying with you in that regard because I want to see what has been built in this church for nearly 80 years continue and grow but not in a way that compromises this great thing that has been entrusted to us. All right, let's pray. Father, we are grateful for uh, Your grace and we know that we need Your grace from beginning to end. We're thankful that You have entrusted this gospel to us. We feel so inadequate for the task. I mean, who are we to look at this great treasure and, and stand uh, as a guardian of it. And yet you have given us the, the ability and, and you have equipped us to be able to do that. And specifically, um, you have charged the, the pastor to be able to lead in that way. And I, so I pray that as this church news moves to the next phase of their life, that, that you would direct them to a man who would um, be uncompromising in his view of the gospel and his willingness to stand up for the sake of it, stand up against false teaching, and to hold fast to that which is good, and to, 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 to flee from evil. And I pray that he would lead this congregation to do the same. And so this church has a, a great responsibility ahead of them, and specifically the, the pulpit committee. And so would you give them direction as, they, uh, as the pulpit committee works through this process of finding the right candidate, the right man for this job and presenting him before the church and then the church evaluating him and then ultimately choosing him by way of vote would you um, work through this whole process and be glorified in advancing this church to the next level of stability and spiritual growth and we pray this all for your glory in Jesus name, Amen All right, this time we are going to take prayer requests and then pray in smaller groups. So there is a prayer sheet on the end of your table. So I think in all of our prayers as a church, um, when we come to, to meet together, and I'm going to just try to remind you each time we're here on Sunday nights, um, that we should be praying for this next stage in our church's life and praying for God's direction. I think God would be honored in that, and I think you know, God is faithful to give wisdom to those who ask Him. So let's ask Him for wisdom in this process where we don't know. I mean, He doesn't list the name of the next person in the Scriptures, so He has to direct in a different way. And uh, I think that He directs through open doors, through... Um, desires, both of you and the person, and then thirdly, through wise counsel. So, so you'd do well to, to kind of look for those um, evidences of God's leading. He's not going to whisper the name of the next guy to you. 
Um, he's not going to drop them on your doorstep like a stork would a baby. Um, uh, so, so there's a process by which you go, and, and you need to depend upon God along the way, and I'll be praying along with you. Um, because I, like you, have much invested into this church. I'm not talking financially primarily, but I'm talking about spiritually, and I want to see this church thrive and grow, and and I know you do too. So, so let's be depending on God for that. So in addition to that, is there something else that we can be praying for? Are there any specific requests that we should know about as a church? And Oh, thank you. There you go. I, I overlooked that. Thank you. ABC Church, search for a new pastor. Good. So obviously in, included in that is long-term pastor. I think that's the main thing. But in between there, there's some transition needs to happen. So you know, you do well to... To, to find a good interim pastor who can help hold the fort, you know, between me and the next guy. Uh, and um, so, obviously, uh, you can be praying for that as well. All right, good. Jonathan. All right, so Christian Explored uh, week number two this Wednesday night. And if you ha- you missed the first week, that's fine. You're welcome to come. Uh, we'll have a book for you to, to work through, just working through Mark's Gospel, a good time of fellowship and studying the Scriptures, but certainly uh, open to more than just Christians. And obviously that's our end, end goal is to see unbelievers come, non-believers who may not feel comfortable um, coming and sitting in the church service, formal church service. So that's kind of one of the reasons that we offer this class. So, yeah, um, let's pray for specific opportunities for ourselves in that regard. All right? Anything else? Bob? Uh, we appreciate everybody praying for Ray, but I have to pray for Philip. Uh, not handling Ray's situation too well. I pray that you really lean on God and their strength. All right. Yeah. All right, let's pray for Ray and Phyllis. Anything else? Mike? Okay, so you're talking Amber and Destiny and... Okay. Pray for Mike's family there. Kathy, is do you have a sheet? There's one on the end of your row there. Um, yeah, she's down in the, under the physical needs. Yeah, Kathy actually has a an appointment tomorrow to find out when she's having surgery to remove what is it parathyroid or parathyroid. So she's going to have a, she's going to set a date tomorrow. So yeah, let's be praying for Kathy. Paul. Yeah. Yeah. 
So that what? Yeah. Yeah. Right. All right. Okay. So pray for Pete and Caroline, heart surgery, and specifically for the gospel, but also for uh, obviously that God would be merciful and healing her. All right. Anyone else? Jonathan. Something that happened at your work, you mean? Okay. All right. Let's break up into groups of uh, three or four and spend the rest of our time praying. So just pray until you hear the piano play, and then once you hear the piano, we'll all be dismissed together. And you're welcome to pray in here, or if you'd rather you can go into that really hot box and across the hall. Um, let's pray. Uh, 